Blog Talk Radio. The following show is a proud member of the ShowDoc Network. Learn more about this show and other great shows by logging on to ShowDoc.com. This week's episode of The Legal Docket is being sponsored by Blog Talk Radio, The Hyperbole Hour, and by Immigration Reform, that is Washington's new focus. Coming to you live from... What's on your docket? Welcome to the Legal Docket with Quas and Jay. Tune in to hear their take on law and politics to find out if our government makes the grade. Presented by ShowDoc.com. Time to talk some politics and legal issues and popular culture. Hello and welcome to the Legal Docket on Blog Talk Radio. This is episode 21 for January 27, 2012. Tonight we're discussing the top political issues and legal topics of the week. We are coming to you live tonight from, from Brooklyn, New York, and Staten Island, New York. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ethan Klossman. And I'm joined by, uh, I believe I'm joined by Ilya Arby at this time. Yes, that's right, Ethan. Once again, another week, another time for us to do a weekly show for Legal Docket. A pleasure to be here again with us. Uh as far as I believe, uh, I believe Jay is still on assignment at this time, and uh, yeah. we'll see. he'll be joining us at some time in the near future. Uh, oh, however, indeed, uh, very excited to be here tonight, coming to you live from Staten Island, and here uh, covering for Jay, as well as uh, Ethan, who is uh, joining me on uh, our weekly show doc presentation of Legal Docket, where we talk about all the major legal and political issues of the day. Uh, so before we get started, um, do we have a special announcement, I believe, Mr. Quasman? Uh, in regards to what? <laughs> uh, well, we were just talking, actually, just prior to the show, it's, it happens. Ethan's got a lot of things to prepare for. So um, we just would like to say uh, for all the families who were uh, yes. part of yes. the uh, the fire, the nightclub in Brazil, uh, there was at least 230 people dead, uh, as reported by NBC News. Uh, and our thoughts and prayers are with those families over there. Our hearts go out to everybody who was... Uh, injured or has uh, unfortunately passed in this very, very tragic situation and so fortunate to hear when these kinds of things happen, uh, but uh, it, it does occasionally happen. It's very tragic to hear it and, um, you know, you, you live and you learn from these situations and, uh, again, our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to those families of those who were involved. And uh, yeah, with that being said... Yeah. Police that, said, that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, police said the Brazil nightclub fire killed at least 232 people, and the majority were um, university students uh, in, the, in the southern city of Santa Maria. And authorities said the fire broke out early Sunday at a club known as Kiss, and that while the cause of the blade has not yet been confirmed, a flare or firework that was part of the band's uh, part of their their uh, their pyrotechnic display is the likely cause. So this is a tragedy uh, in Brazil, and uh, I, I've yet to hear if the White House has said anything about this yet. But I'm sure President Obama has already reached out in support to Brazil uh, about. Um, of course, the United States and Brazil have very close bonds, and uh, and uh, I would I would imagine that the United States is providing any assistance that they can in this devastating um, situation. So uh, it's uh, we'll see what happens, but um, you know, this does kind of. Uh remind me uh, about uh, actually uh, more or less so, somewhere closer to home I would, I would rather say 
there was a, a big fire, if you remember, uh, over in, um, in in Russia. This was, this was just in uh, 2009, I'm looking, where there was also a similar situation where there was a fireworks display, which actually triggered a fire and panic, and it killed uh, 156 people. And uh, that that was... Uh, that was a pretty intense situation as well. I remember it very clearly a few years ago. And, uh, you know, just to think about it, even now, years later, uh, you know, this kind of situation still keeps happening, particularly countries that don't necessarily have uh, such, such such good fire protection laws as we have here in the United States. You know, you notice these things that a lot of the... A lot of the issues that are part of the fire code here in the United States are not widely accepted by countries in the other, in, in let's say, you know, less uh, less civilized countries. And so, you know, when you look at this, perhaps this is just another reminder that all the various um, fire codes that exist in our communities are probably there for a reason. They're probably there for our protection in order to you know, so to prevent these kind of situations from happening here in the United States, uh, and I think that's particularly why we don't see a lot of stories like this coming out in recent days here in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, from Google News, they're remarking that uh, this fire is uh, a reminder of a Rhode Island blaze. This is in USA Today. It is a blaze in Rhode Island. Um, Uh, there was a there was a, a a Rhode Island the station nightclub fire in 2003, in which 100 people were killed. Um, so similar kind um, of fatalities, obviously much more in Brazil. But um, yeah, it seems to be far more uh, far more intense in Brazil. So I just wonder how packed they were and. You know, we have certain rules here in place, such as, you know, there's a limit as to how many people can pack a place. And a lot of times that's actually done in order to be able to evacuate people much easier from various uh, different events. Um, you know, I, I'm just wondering if, if whether this would have been considered an overcapacity club here in the United States, particularly for the reasons that you cannot evacuate all those people and they end up being stuck in a rather you know, contained environment without any uh, effective ways to get out of the building. Yeah, and maybe there needs to be something to be done about about uh, these club safety that needs to really be taken into effect, that uh, there's more um, there's more staff who are there to to protect the uh, the crowd. Because it didn't seem like um, there was a lot of safeguards in place in this nightclub in Brazil. Hey, uh, Ethan, this is uh, actually I'm coming in with some breaking news here out of New York. Uh, for those of our listeners who are in the New York area, uh, it, it looks like there was a plane crash uh, just a few hours ago. Yeah, it's a river. It seems that a small plane has crashed into the Hudson River and two people have been taken to the hospital, uh, apparently uninjured, as according to the Fox News article here. And uh, around 5.30 p.m. today, they say uh, a plane had went down into the Hudson River just off of Yonkers. And uh, they said that police have picked up two survivors from the water about 20 to 30 minutes after the crash. And uh, the plane was a Piper PA-32 single-engine aircraft, and uh, the survivors were wearing life vests, so they were able to uh, be taken away. So, was this this another miracle on the Hudson? Well, it it certainly was a miracle, but it was definitely not a commercial plane like the other situation, but uh, it looks like they survived, and the only thing that they had... uh, that that was a problem, which is expected is hypothermia, and that's because they were in the water for what looks like about to be twenty to thirty minutes after the crash. And uh, but they are left in a stable condition, so they're expected to make a full recovery. 
So uh, that's, that's that's interesting. That's that's reminiscent of those uh, situations with the uh, uh, with, with like you said, like when we had the, uh, the miracle on the Hudson after the commercial airplane had landed into the water. But this seems to be on a much much smaller scale, but it's still the same kind of concept where the plane had landed into the water. So. Um, yeah, so let's switch gears here. Uh, again, our thoughts are with the victims, the families of the victims in Brazil. Let's switch gears to uh, some domestic issues. And uh, one big issue here, which also also involves a little bit of, of foreign policy, is uh, immigration reform. Um, and that's what well, was mentioned in our, in our in our sponsorship, that's one of the big uh, one of the big proposals, big plans that Washington is now focusing on. Um, there's now there's now a push for U.S. immigration reform and Senate action on President Obama's cabinet picks highlight what promises to be a busy week in the United States. Uh, Ilya, um, President Obama made immigration reform one of his biggest um, campaign issues uh, in his first term. He wasn't able to get the job done due to a lot of gridlock in Washington. And I don't know how much he's going to be able to get done this time around, but there's a lot of work to be done in terms of uh, in terms of um, of, of reforming um, uh, how immigrants get acquainted to the United States. And President Obama is traveling Tuesday to Las Vegas to rally public support for reforming America's off-criticized immigration system. Nevada is one of many states with a substantial Hispanic population that overwhelmingly backed Obama's re-election last year. And the president restated his commitment to immigration reform in his inaugural in his inaugural address last week. So this is coming from uh, VoiceofAmerica.com, VOANews.com, and uh, President Obama said that our journey is not complete until we find a better way to welcome the striving, hopeful immigrants who still see America as a land of opportunity until bright young students and engineers are enlisted in our workforce rather than expelled from our country. So uh, a lot of of talk here for um, in terms of the legal issues involved. This is is a very legal type of issue. Um, And Elia, I believe you have some more breaking news uh, that you want to share with the listeners. Um, yeah, I was actually just scanning the, the Associated Press wires, and uh, I just came up with this story. Uh, it seems today is a big news day. Um, yeah. It, it, it looks like, from what I'm getting from the Associated Press, that a barge carrying 80,000 gallons of oil has hit a railroad bridge near Vicksburg, uh, Mississippi, uh, sometime... Uh, late last night, uh, rather early this morning, uh, and it looks like uh, some of, uh, most of that oil has been spilling into the Mississippi River, uh, closing the waterway for eight miles. Uh, that's that's a big concern. Uh, we, we all know how quickly the situation that happened in the Gulf uh, back when uh, we had the BP oil spill had quickly gotten out of control. And so I, I find it very interesting that here we have another situation where, again, you know, this this brings into question the transportation uh, of oil and, and how can we do this without really, uh, you know, causing harm to the environment. Because any time that the oil, oil is spilled into the waterway, it kills a lot of living creatures, not only fish, but also, uh, you know, especially particularly in the areas like, in the south where Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, they depend a lot on that water. There's a lot of fishing going on. 
uh, a lot of the communities are built around the waterways. So whenever something like this uh, does happen, it's a very, very big concern uh, for everybody involved, uh, in particular because, the again, it doesn't seem like the Gulf of Mexico is in question at this point. Uh, it is way too far. This, this, uh, the Associated Press is reporting that it's 344 miles south of Vicksburg, so it's quite a long ways away. But any kind of oil spill, I think, is a very big incident and I think should be taken very seriously. And, uh, you know, as our country becomes more and more dependent on oil and oil reserves, I definitely think that transportation of this oil is something that will probably have to be reviewed at some point or another. And the more incidents such as this we have, then uh, the more I think it's going to come back into question. So, um, But just to get back on topic here, I, I know you mentioned uh, President Obama and immigration concerns. Um, you know, while while we're on this topic, uh, th- there is also another story, also coming off the wires, about fraud concerns that are lingering over the new Illinois law. Now, if you know, let me give you a little bit of the background. Uh, Illinois became the fourth state to give illegal immigrants permission to drive, which actually essentially allows them to get a state-issued legal document indicating that they're allowed to drive without actually having a social security number or any other kind of government ID. Uh, obviously, this is something that becomes a concern because as with any time where you don't need to present an actual government ID to get a government ID, uh, you're obviously concerned about identity fraud. And this is something that you know, the Republicans are arguing, as as many times before, that this is something that is uh, becoming a big concern, not only in Illinois, but all over the country. Uh, it is being told that Democratic Governor Pat Quinn signed the Illinois measure into law Sunday in Chicago. Um, backers include, obviously, Governor Pat Quinn. Also, they include Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Does that name ring a bell by any chance, Ethan? Oh yeah, he was—he's now the governor of of Chicago, right? He is the mayor of Chicago. Mayor, mayor—they can't be a governor. Correct, <laughs> but he also happens to be President Obama's former chief of staff. Yes, during during his first, and, and, and he's known for for, for uh, he's known for for having for having quite a a fit sometimes. Indeed, indeed. So I think it's it's actually, you know, now that you mentioned that President Obama is making immigration policy one of his top concerns, well, if we look at his hometown of Chicago, it seems that they're already ahead of the game. They're already looking into this, and, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel was a very strong supporter of this, but also uh, the entire state now has this, this kind of law where they have facial recognition technology that uh, allows them to verify a person's identity uh, as opposed to having any other kind of paperwork. So this is, again, a question of whether, you know, just how far can technology go to assist us? Just how far can technology go before somebody finds a way around it? And, uh, you know, obviously, with all the technology involved, uh, fraud becomes a very, very common common question. Well, how do we avoid uh, all this, all the fraud? And, and is it better than, say, fingerprinting? Is it more accurate than fingerprinting? So... You know, it brings into question lots of different concerns, but I think, personally, on a personal note, I definitely think that this is a step in the right direction. I think that more often than not, we see the government not embracing the new technologies that are out there and rather sticking with the old bureaucratic ways of doing it, and it takes a long time for the government to really catch up and use, utilize the technology that is available to them. Uh, if you know, in other news recently, the TSA has finally uh, made a, a, an ultimate decision to remove those invasive body scanners that a lot of people are complaining about. And again, that's another question of the technology to replace them has already existed, but as with uh, many things that are introduced by the government, it takes a long time and a lot of red tape to go across before any of those things are accepted to be removed and replaced with better technology that might already be available. You know, private enterprise comes up with technology far, far quicker than I believe people are actually capable of, of 
adapting to it, particularly governments, because they're so large and because it takes them a long time to really replace it. I think it takes a lot, a lot more time to really pursue this and definitely a lot more time to to, to to have something more uniform. They need to make sure that it works solidly, that it works in all different situations, and that there are enough safeguards in order for it not to, um, you know, cross any privacy laws or anything that might cause government more headache than it's worth. So uh, I think this is definitely, you know, a step in the right direction for immigration reform, definitely. But more particularly, I enjoy the fact that the government is utilizing some new technology. And and this is actually reminiscent of President Obama as well. You know, while we're on the topic, uh, as you know, President Obama has made uh, major improvements in communication, particularly with his uh, constituents. Uh, There's been a lot of recent, I would say, recent examples of how President Obama uses the new technology. I know uh, that he has held public chats with users online where they could ask him questions and he would answer it uh, in real time. Uh, also, he has expanded the project of um, the petitioning, the petition project, where people can actually... Uh, Obama has even hosted a show on Blog Talk Radio once. Oh, well, there you go. He, he was a fellow broadcaster, just like us, uh, colleagues of sorts. Uh, but, but more so, he's uh, opened up the White House website for petitioning, where if enough people petition the White House and sign a certain petition, it can actually reach President Obama directly or have one of his direct representatives in the cabinet actually respond to that petition and have to address it, which has, of course, as, as with everybody, has, has uh, had its fair share of fun. Uh, I think one very interesting example of this, and, and even the, you, you will find this quite interesting, um, somebody has requested that the government build a Death Star, which is an obvious reference to the Star Wars um, Imperial, uh, uh as Star Wars fans know, it's a Star Wars Imperial war machine. And uh, there was quite a thoughtful and interesting response by the one of the science advisors to the president. And uh, again, yes, it may seem trivial and funny, but at the same time, I think this is a perfect example that, you know, if we can have that kind of reach and that kind of access to people with something that is more or less a joke, then we should have almost as equal access to something that is a more serious issue, where, where serious issues have been indeed discussed on that website. And, you know, it's, it's a very real conversation. And I think President Obama has done a phenomenal job in opening up the government and making it a little bit more transparent for people to be able to do it. Uh, could more be done? Of course. Of course it can. But has he taken steps in the right direction for it? I believe so. I believe he's he's gone further than any of the more recent presidents have, uh, you know, going as far back as, you know, well, since when technology took off in the 80s. So I think that's a step in the right direction. What's your take on it, Ethan? Well, I think it has to be a bipartisan effort um, that would provide a, a path to legalization for millions of foreign nationals who enter the United States illegally. Um, and the other thing is that uh, they need to strengthen uh, the border security of the United States. Uh, so that's, there are two elements here that are very important. And um, I think the, the only way, and it's going to become law, is if it's done by a bipartisan effort if it's done by head Republicans and head Democrats leading the charge to uh, to make matters easier for people to become legal. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ilya, living in, in New York City, we're very, we're, we're very familiar with undocumented immigrants. They work in a lot of the stores we go to, but, we, but no one talks about them that much. But uh, it, it is the reality here in New York, in New York City. Uh, 
So well, I would be care- I would be careful there, Ethan. It's it's quite a stretch to say that they work in a lot of the stores and a lot of the businesses that we have around here. However, yeah. it's, it's just a very it's a very you, you know you don't want to go with the stereotyping. You don't want to say that every person no, no. on the street uh, is necessarily an illegal immigrant. Does it exist? Of course it does. Of course it's unavoidable, yeah. particularly in, in, in any, any large city. We, we, you know, you can't just go out in New York. I'm sure there's plenty of uh, illegal immigrants in Washington, D.C., in Boston, in Chicago, in pretty much any major city, even Los Angeles. And they come from all different parts of the world. We can't just say, oh, you know, it's just people crossing the border from Mexico. No, there's illegal immigrants from all kinds of areas. There's people that are escaped countries from, uh, you know, the Eastern European bloc. There's people escaping countries from such countries as Egypt and Iran and Iraq, and they all seek asylum here in the United States. And uh, and some of them do it illegally. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to tell. And, and, And personally, I don't think that a person's legal status necessarily should define the kind of person that they are. Uh, you know, one thing to note is, is in this um, Associated Press story, this actually happened a little while ago, but I just want to, this definitely reminded me of it. Um, earlier in 2011, an, an essay written by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jose Antonio Vargas. Now, again, just to remind people, Pulitzer Prize means, you know, this this he won the highest prize that a journalist can attain. A Pulitzer Prize is awarded for any kind of journalistic work or any kind of written work that uh, exceeds the expectations. It's voted on by uh, various members of the, both the written press and, and academics, and uh, it's a very revered prize. It's essentially the Oscars of journalism, I would say. And this 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 guy won that prize as part of his coverage and, and uh, participation in the New York Times, and he had actually revealed in a New York Times magazine uh, that he is an illegal immigrant. He revealed his status in an essay for the magazine. He chronicled how he he actually wrote down how he obtained his Washington, D.C. license. And actually he did, as a result of that article, there was an investigation done by state authorities uh, that actually revealed that he did not reside at the address that he stated in his application, and they actually ended up canceling his license. So he actually took a risk with that situation, but, you know, at least he made it known. So it it can be anybody. It can be people who work with you. It can be people, like you said, who you go to the store and you see them working. But it can also be people who are journalists. It can be people who are, uh, you know, Mechanics. It can be people who are bus drivers. It can be many people. It can be a number of people. Yeah. So and, I said, um, people working in stores as undocumented. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a very very thin line there uh, to to cross. So it's it's interesting to to note, and uh, I definitely think that you know this is actually brings me to our next topic, um, something I want to discuss. Again, looking at the wires right now, uh, UPI is reporting. Um, this is actually more of a summary of uh, U.S. Representative Paul Ryan from Wisconsin wa- appeared on Meet the Press. Uh, Paul Ryan was the vice presidential nominee uh, of 2012 uh, for uh, Mitt Romney. And uh, he actually did his first Sunday talk show interview since the election. And, uh, you know, it's interesting what he noted. One particular uh, quote that was pulled was that his suggestion that the party must expand their appeal. Uh, More particularly, uh, here's exactly what he said. When he was asked what he thought was the major lesson for Republicans after losing the election and losing several House and Senate seats, uh, Brian said, uh, well, we obviously have to expand our appeal. We have to expand our appeal to more people and somehow how we'll take the country's founding principles and apply them to the problems of the deal to offer solutions to fix our problems. And, you know, this brings us back to what we talked about briefly right after the election and also what we talked about just now is that a lot of people felt disconnected by the Republican Party. A lot of people felt that the Republican Party does not understand their concerns. They don't understand what they're facing. 
And I think if the Republicans are interested in gaining office uh, further down the road in 2016, this is something that they have to work on, is, is not having to address the concerns of, say, a particular group, or not having to address the concerns of a stereotype, but rather take the country as a whole. If you remember Mitt Romney's, one of the first things that brought down Mitt Romney was when the video surfaced of him saying that 47% of the country doesn't matter. Yeah. And that really brought him down to the polls. That really was a very ugly remark to make. Uh, understandably, it could have been a mistake. But when you're on that kind of level, those mistakes matter. And then immediately the uh, the Obama re-election campaign sent out a video that when you're president, you're president for all the for all Americans, and uh, that that was their big um, ad campaign in response to that, and that really that really uh, helped him gain some popularity uh, in the uh, in the polls. And I may have garnered some votes for him as well. So, right, exactly. And, and again, you know, Paul Ryan is obviously still—he's still a chairman of the House Budget Committee. He's still talking about, um, you know, how President Obama, does, at least according, according to Paul Ryan, he expressed doubt that President Barack Obama thinks we actually have a fiscal crisis. So clearly, he is still at, at odds and ends, but um, he does admit that, uh, you know, even though he didn't say in particular uh, that he opposes any federal revenue, new federal revenue from tax reform, he does say that President Obama got his additional revenues. That's behind him. And, uh, you know, that this, this, is, this is something that I think you know, you know, Paul Ryan was always one of the particular politicians who was able to kind of, I think, more or less unite the party more so than Mitt Romney did. And, um, you know, one of the things that he mentioned, and I think this is particularly why people liked him, uh, I personally, you know, whatever the preferences may be, I definitely think that Ryan was a very good candidate as a partner for Mitt Romney because he was able to relate to people. He is one of those people that can sit down and say, uh, just like he did at this Media Press interview, both parties got us to the mess we're in, this fiscal crisis, and both parties need to solve it. Which I think ultimately is an accurate statement. You know, you can go and basically your political views say, oh, well, the Republicans are responsible for this. And then the Republicans will say, well, no, the Democrats are responsible for this. But bottom line is, both parties are responsible. Both parties are responsible for different things, of course, but both parties are responsible. And the best way to resolve any kind of situation where you have that kind of gridlock is just to sit down and figure out a solution that may not be the best solution for everybody, but it's a solution nonetheless. It's a solution that will at least give some kind of compromise. The only way to reach a compromise is if everybody loses. So I think both parties need to make sure that when they sit down, they have to be prepared to make concessions to the other party. And I think that is the only way that we will be able to get to where both parties are looking to go. If, if they want to make an impression on the American people, then the best way to do it would be to say, look, we're going to have to make concessions. Let's figure out which ones we can make. So I think that's going to be key to see whether, you know, everybody can go on a Sunday talk show and, and suggest these ideas. The question is, is this something that can be done? Is this something that can be accomplished in the next few years? That's a question I'm not so sure about because from what we've seen in the past, I, I haven't seen any evidence of this actually working out successfully. It's easy to say it on a Sunday talk show. It's much harder to do when you're in the House or the Senate and you have all these different personalities coming together. Yeah. And just just another topic. Speaking of talk shows, President Obama is set to prepare, is set to appear in a joint interview with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, as she is 
as she um, ends her term as Secretary of State. Uh, this is Obama's only joint interview, uh, besides ones that he did with with the, with the First Lady Michelle Obama. So uh, this should be interesting to watch um, and observe because. Uh, um, they were big uh they've become quite close uh in in Washington ever since the election, but remember they were big opponents leading up to the first election. So it's interesting that they're doing this joint interview, don't you think so, Ilya? Ethan, let's talk about this for a minute. Just out of curiosity. I wanna see if I can uh foggle your mind a little bit. Yeah. You've been following politics for quite a while now from what I understand. And uh, here's my question to you. Considering that this is the first joint interview that President Obama has done with anybody other than First Lady Michelle Obama, don't you find it somewhat curious that it happens to be Hillary Clinton? Yeah, very curious. When I first heard it, I was I was very uh I was very blown away by that. I was like, What is he doing? Uh, now, we all know Hillary Clinton's aspirations. Now, she may say nowadays uh, that she has absolutely no further plans. But let's be realistic. She has been in the race before. What what could possibly be stopping her from entering the race in twenty sixteen? She was a very close contender. She was going head-to-head with Obama. It could have been either one. Right. Do you think we might see more of Hillary Clinton in the coming years? Do you think she's stepping away now in order to kind of focus herself on coming back in a few years? Perhaps she didn't want to be doing the day-to-day daily duties and, and kind of traveling all over the world at the same time as setting up her campaign. My thought is perhaps she's stepping away now so that, say, in two years' time, she can start campaigning again. And we will see, possibly, President Obama again siding with Hillary Clinton, this time by saying, well, if you want more of what I did, pick Hillary. It's a thought. It's certainly something I'm sure that has crossed the minds of many Democratic strategist in terms of saying, well, she was closely aligned with Obama since the beginning. Perhaps we can continue that trend. What do you think? I think it's an interesting proposition. I think that I don't know whose choice was was it to do this joint interview, but... uh, Well, uh, let's look at at, at the facts. Uh, Associated Press is reporting that it was President Obama who suggested the joint interview. Yes, it was. That's right. Yes, you're right. And also he sat there and, as they say, lavished praise on his former rival. He called her a friend, an extraordinary talent, and praised her discipline, her stamina, her thoughtfulness, her ability to project. Now, again, again and again, time and time again, I always remind people, President Obama, prior to his Senate position, was a community organizer. And he very often found himself aligning with people that have, you know, a big future or possibly setting up other people for success in in the future. Uh, He brought on Rahm Emanuel as a chief of staff with him to Washington. He was his chief of staff in the Senate, and later on, Rahm Emanuel went on to with President Obama's support to become the mayor of the city of Chicago. So the fact that President Mm -hmm. Obama is being so insistent Mm -hmm. on being there by the side Mm -hmm. of President Clinton means he wants his Mm -hmm. image to rub off on whatever Hillary decides to do further down the road. And I'm pretty sure in private talks that they might have had, there might have been talk about the future. There might have been talk about what Hillary plans to do. Something that she might not reveal to the public at this time, but you have, you know, with a person like Hillary Clinton, you know 
she must be thinking ahead. She must be thinking about what's in the future. And it's very difficult to just sit there and accept that she's leaving the position of Secretary of State without having any kind of plan as to what she wants to do in the future. And she's recovered beautifully from her from her concussion. Well, it, it's something that happens, so I'm sure she has a tough schedule, but she also has access to some excellent health care. Thanks to Obamacare. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, you know, it, it's very funny because uh, President Obama's actually made a wisecrack. He says, uh, you guys in the press are incorrigible. I was literally inaugurated four days ago, and you're talking about elections four years from now. Well, as I like to say, he's old news now. Yep. So, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen. It, it definitely is something that we're going to have to look at. It's definitely something that it's uh it's gonna it's gonna be a question that's gonna come back. It's gonna be a question that's definitely gonna come back in the future. I know that there's gonna be a lot of speculation coming down the line. Um but let's let's put it this way. Hillary Clinton was um a good Secretary of State. She's had her moments. There have been also the moments, as you know, the uh attack on Benghazi uh, last last year on September 11th that was really uh, uh, a, a um, interesting talking point for the Republican Party during the debates and it's something that came up time and time again and this was definitely on her watch so um, you know it's something that's definitely going to be looked into further down the line I mean do you really expect if Hillary Clinton decides to run for the top office that the questions about her time under President Obama won't come up I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. And I'm sure all the difficult things will be mentioned and all the difficult decisions she's had to make and also all the mistakes that she made during her tenure. So, you know, this is, again, this is something that will definitely be looked at over the next several, um, I would say, years, months, perhaps. She's still uh, still around, so um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see about uh, how things turn out. Definitely. And, uh, and what were we going to say? Um, yeah, so the interview is going to be airing on CBS, is that correct? I believe, I, believe so. I believe it was a 60 minutes interview, so we'll definitely be seeing it sometime soon. So um, that's that's definitely something to be doing. It now, as I mentioned before, uh, and this is an issue I like to talk about all the time, as you know, gun control. We have Senator oh, yes. Diane Diane Feinstein. So she had press reports that uh, on Thursday, last Thursday, she introduced a bill that will prohibit 157 specific weapons and ammunition magazines that have more than 10 rounds. Uh, again, I, I'm sure the White House is kind of skeptical about this, the Associated Press reports, uh, given that they're a little bit afraid of the pro-gun voters in the National Rifle Association. Uh, but Diane Feinstein is leading that fight. She is uh, a senator in California, and she seems to be at the forefront of the uh, of the anti-gun uh, group that is looking to make more, you know, more more of a of a um, more of a how do I put it? More more strict rules on handling guns. Uh, here's an interesting fact, and this is something that I, that I actually did not know. Do you know who is a strong supporter of the weapons ban? Um, Republican or Democrat? <laughs> actually, actually, at this point, it's neither, but it is the New York City Police Commissioner, Ray Kelly. Oh, wow. Yes, he actually favors the assault weapons ban. 
Uh, he also mentioned that uh, it would be expressed skepticism that it would be returned to law. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's interesting that Ray Kelly is throwing his hat in. Um, you know, does gun control really affect us here in New York? Uh, New York seems to be one of those states that's pretty strict on gun control, and yet, you know, to have Ray Kelly, who is a polarizing figure in local politics, I'd say, and definitely somebody who's been able to keep the police department afloat all these years. And um, here you see him jumping up to the national stage and saying that, uh, you know, supporting this gun control measure, uh, I think, speaks volumes uh, because it's a person who's not so much affiliated with any party. He's more of a man who kind of deals with the direct result of it. They tried to find a... uh, a police force that is able to contain. And and we do have a problem with guns here in the city. We, there's lots of, you know, if you read the, read the local police blotter, it's always awful to see how many guns are out there on the streets that are making it into the hands of criminals in just very strange ways. I mean, just, just one situation alone reminds me, if you remember, Ethan, quite a, a, a very scary situation when there was a shooting just outside the Empire State Building, a very tourist-heavy area. So it's not only affecting people who are locals, it's also affect might affect tourists, and might affect tourism here in New York City, one of the very major, I'd say, sources of revenue for New York City. So uh, to see uh, Ray Kelly enter onto the national scene, I think, is a very good indicator of just how serious this issue is becoming and just how big it might grow. And I speculate that this is only going to go into a much, much bigger discussion than it is nowadays. And uh, we have yet to see any real talk being done. And I think, you know, all the turmoil and questions you've had about, you've heard about Obamacare, I think gun control is going to rise almost it's not exactly the same level that we have seen being when uh, Obamacare was being discussed. Right. Ethan? Yeah, hi, yeah. I just wanted to ask me another topic. You talked about New York City before, and um, I wanted talk about the 2013 NYC mayoral election, which is scheduled to occur in 2013, and one of the favorites, I don't know if you heard this, Ilya, but uh, one of the favorites is... um, Well, Democrats are holding the, the early lead in the New York City mayoral race, and 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 Bloomberg is Republican, right? So uh, uh, Bloomberg Bloomberg is complicated. He actually ran on both parties. He ran as a, a Republican yes. and, and and a Democrat. But I, from what I remember nowadays, I believe he's an independent. But uh, don't hold me don't hold me down for that. Uh, let me actually check right now for you while we're talking about. Uh, he is actually currently, yeah, he's a member of the Independent Party since 2007, which is curiously interesting. Uh, so, and this is the uh, latest news about the mayoral run, the mayoral race. Uh, N- New York City public advocate Bill de Blasio, a Democrat, that's Blasio spelled B-L-A-S-I-O, announced that he will likely be running for mayor of the city of New York. He comes from Brooklyn, um, and he's pledging to leave no New Yorker behind by focusing on public education, which he believes Mayor Bloomberg has failed on public education. And he's going to focus on public education and also um, neighborhood and pocketbook issues. Bill de Blasio is 51 years old. He made his long-expected announcement in front of his three-story row house in Park Slope, Brooklyn, accompanied by his wife and his teenage son. And I think 
de Blasio is uh, is um, uh, what's it called when you marry somebody of the other uh, of of um, of a different race? That's uh, is that biracial? I believe that's interracial. Interracial, yes. So he brings interesting uh, um, approach as a as a interracial married man. Uh, his wife is, is, is her name is uh, 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 Sherlene McGray, and his son is Dante. And Bill de Blasio um, outlined several priorities, including improving public education, aiding small business owners, and revamping stop and frisk police procedures. Stop and frisk very popular in New York City, as it is in many urban areas. Um, Bill de Blasio, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was listening to you. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, Bill de Blasio uh, was elected to citywide office in 2009. He's relatively unknown. While his job approval ratings are solid, many voters still do not know enough about him to form an opinion. Even so, de Blasio is viewed... I hope I'm saying his name right. Blasio is viewed as one of the top-tier Democrats in the race, along with Mrs. Quinn and William C. Thompson, Jr., a former city controller who lost to Mayor Bloomberg in 2009. I wasn't that sure was, that Thompson was running again. I'm surprised to hear that he is. Who? Uh, the, uh, Thompson, Bill Thompson. Yeah, he's running again. <laughs> oh, wow, that's interesting. And also tipping his hat in will probably be the New York City controller, John Liu, who is actually uh, under investigation. But um, I'm, I'm surprised that that, again, that that cast of characters has been around for over a year now as the uh, likely candidates for running for office. So uh, it's not, it's definitely not a surprise that they're around. Uh, it's great that Bill de Blasio has finally announced something that has been expected for him to announce. Uh, he's given enough hints to everybody to know that's kind of what his intentions were, but I guess now we can finally make it official and say that he has officially announced his uh, run for candidacy. He'll probably be end up doing a lot of fundraisers over the next few months, uh, getting ready for the election that's coming up. And uh, it's coming up next year. Not sure. Uh, the elections are uh, November 2013. That's when I oh, may have been oh, wow, this year. Wow, I didn't even realize it was this year. But yeah, so then uh, there's going to be a lot of fundraising going on. And definitely a lot, I believe over the summer there's going to be a, a lot of stuff in the news going around, especially in the New York City local area. Anytime there's a, particularly this time around, when there's a mayoral election, uh, expected Mayor Bloomberg is not going to be able to run for another term unless he manages to uh, overturn term limits again. But uh, that's, that's an interesting concept. But here's something else I found. Everybody knows what you know, a few a few months ago, there was a big, big situation about Casey Anthony. Do you remember Casey Anthony? Uh, was that the uh, was that the story with her baby girl? Mm-hmm. This was actually uh, wow, wow! I didn't realize it has been that long. Ethan, it's been two years ago. <laughs> her murder trial was two years ago. Oh gosh. Um. Yeah, it seems that this was back in uh, 2011, was it, Carl? It feels so much more recent, but I guess this this, this definitely was uh, a while back. Yeah, May 24, 2011 was when the trial began. Oh, my gosh, it feels like yesterday. I remember following the story closely. Um, She has actually filed for bankruptcy, citing almost $800,000 in liability. Uh, an appeals court is looking into her convictions. Uh, yes, 
It just looks like a real big mess, but uh, she says she owes almost $800,000, I'm sorry, $800,000 to about 80 creditors. That's nearly a million. Yeah, that's a lot of money that she seems to be spending. And, um, you know, that's that's definitely something that is, uh, wow, I'm surprised that she seems to be owing a lot of money to mostly it looks like she owes the money for her uh, defense attorney and also to the Orange County Sheriff's Office. As well as as well as what looks like as well as what looks like she owes almost seven sixty eight thousand dollars over sixty eight thousand dollars to the Internal Revenue Service, which is definitely not kind of kind of money you want them to be following you for. So. Well, you would anyway. that with, 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 with all the legal help that she needed. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, here's another little, a couple of quick things as we wrap up our show. Uh, one is a business piece over here. It seems that Samsung has actually had a very strong quarter, um, more particularly in the fact that it is actually beating out Apple on emerging market growth. Uh so they actually look to be heading in the right direction and definitely beating out Apple at their own game. Uh, it's, it's quite an interesting turn of events here, and I think it's something that Apple is definitely going to have to take a look at again because it seems that uh, Samsung is gaining a lot of ground on them. And finally, right before we go off for the night, uh, here's an interesting story coming out of California today. Uh, UPI reports that... Um, Although employees often tiptoe around their bosses for fear of offending them, uh, researchers ha- are saying that those in power may have thicker skin than employees think. Um, several students and uh, doctoral students in psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, conducted five experiments that examined power dynamics in the workplace and in intimate relationships, focusing on how power influences responses to subtle acts of rejection. And uh, the findings that were that were generally found was that those who had been assigned supervisory roles acted with indifference to perceived snubs from their underlings, while subordinates took offense to comparable barbs from their bosses. So when rejected instead of accepted, subordinates reported lower self-esteem and greater negative emotion, but supervisors did not show an adverse reaction to rejection. Right. What do you think of that, Ethan? Um, you repeat that? <laughs> well, it appears that the bosses don't seem to the bosses seem to bosses or supervisors seem to take a better reaction to rejection from their underlings than the actual subordinates have received from their bosses. Basically speaking, if your boss tells you you did an awful job you will have much lower self-esteem than, say, if you tell your boss that he's not doing such a great job. Meaning bosses are prepared to accept that they're wrong, but employees, uh, you know, lower-level employees uh, don't like to be told by their bosses. They they enjoy, um, you know, they they don't, don't enjoy... Uh, um, Letting letting their bosses down. We'll put it that way. I think that uh, it's fairly accurate, yes. But at the same time, a lot of employees are often worried about how their boss is going to perceive them. But it seems that uh, you know the bosses have much thicker skin than you think. As far as you know, if you think your boss is an idiot, then uh, perhaps he agrees with you in certain situations. And on that note. I think is a good good way for us to uh, say our goodbye for the week. Yeah, uh, and we, we definitely we definitely had some very interesting discussion here. Uh, we had a great show. Uh, actually, one thing we forgot to do is actually remind our listeners how to get in touch with us. Yes, and they they, but in any case, that's definitely something that we'll take a look at further down the road. Uh, next week we have another great show coming up hopefully for you. So stay tuned. Uh, Look into our Facebook pages, showdoc.com. You can get a lot more information about us. And uh, we'll be 
more than glad to hear from you again. And this is Ilya Arbit here from Staten Island on Legal Docket once again. And Ethan Klossman, thank you for tuning in. And we hope to see you in the near future. Goodbye. Have a great night. Good night. Bye-bye. Good night.